I want to begin a brand new series this weekend called Family and Generational Transfer. Psalm 71, verse 17 and 18. You got it? Take a look at it. Since my youth, O God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, until I declare your power to the next generation and your mighty acts to all who are to come. So God has this plan that life and love and wisdom and knowing Him should be passed along from one generation to the next generation. And by the way, from a biblical point of view, it is not bad to be gray. Proverbs 20, verse 29, the glory of youth and young men is their strength, but gray hair is the splendor of the old. Ah, you feeling better? Yeah. That's right out of the Bible. So the idea is that each generation is to devote themselves to the next generation, to pass the baton. Psalm 79, verse 13. Then we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will praise you forever. From generation to generation, we will proclaim your praise. So this generational transfer and unity is all wrapped up in the notion of family. So how do we declare God's power to the next generation? How do we become a multi-generational church? There are lots of churches that kind of age and die. You can tell it when you walk in. And it happens slowly and gradually, but it happens. And then there are some brand new churches that spring up, and everybody is just barely past puberty. Everybody's young. They all listen to the same music, dress the same way, but they lack a part of the total family. So, frankly, there aren't a lot of churches that flourish and grow that are really authentic, multi-generational communities. And we want to believe that God will help us to become a multi-generational church. Sometimes when churches start talking about families, divorced people, people who are childless or widowed, or people who have never been married, can kind of feel left out. But that is not God's plan. So we want to help families that we are all a part of here at Summit to be better and stronger and healthier. Nothing wrong with that, right? So this morning, I want to walk us through three critical moments in the history of the family. There have only been three, and if you know these three, you'll be way ahead of the game when it comes to understanding God's plan for the generations. Three moments. And the first one is this, family is God's idea. Family was God's idea. Now we go all the way back before time. Try to imagine one day God's there with his angels and God says, boys, I got an idea. I'm going to create the family. And an angel says, well, boss, what's that? And God said, I'm very excited about this idea. Now, one of the great things about being God is you never have a bad idea. But this one is kind of unique, right? The family is going to be the way I connect with people in love, and it's going to work like this. Adult people will sign up to take care of this tiny little stranger. And the angel asks, are they going to get paid? God says, oh, no. Actually, that little stranger is going to cost them a whole lot of money. And not only that, he won't even be able to talk at first. It'll just cry and scream, and you'll have to guess why. 
It'll make you lose sleep. It'll make messes all the time you have to clean up. It will be utterly vulnerable. You'll have to watch the kid 24-7. Then when it's two, that little stranger will say with passion words like, no, and mine, and it will throw tantrums. And then I'm thinking about inventing puberty. It'll get these strange things called hormones that'll go crazy, and odd things will happen to their bodies. They'll get pimples, their voice will crack, and then they'll grow up. And just when they finally are mature and interesting and able to contribute, they'll move away. So that's my idea. What do you guys think? And you know, you can imagine the angels are kind of shuffling around, looking down at their feet, and maybe saying to some of the other guys, uh, who wants to tell him? Uh, I don't want to tell him. Lord, nobody's going to sign up for that. Who would sign up for that? And here's where God really gets excited. He says, they won't even know why. They'll just look at that little baby and those little hands and feet, and they'll think this little stranger's beautiful, even though all babies look like Winston Churchill. We know that. <laughs> they'll think this baby is beautiful. And one day when that little stranger smiles at them, they'll think they've won the lottery. And then one day this little stranger will say, Dad, Mama, and he'll say, Dad, first, because daddies are so self-sacrificial and nurturing and noble. <laughs> but, but moms are good, too. <laughs> And then one day, those little arms and hands will open up and reach out and wrap themselves around the parent's neck, and it's going to feel like to the grown-up that for the first time, they understand why arms and hands were created. Now, what that is all about in a kind of sneaky way is just grace. Grace is at the core and fundamental to the universe. Grace is not what God does, it's who God is. Now, we sometimes think about grace, if you're a Christian, the forgiveness of sin. Well, it includes that, but it's way bigger than that. God was gracious before anybody ever sinned. Grace just refers to the gratuitous goodness, the generous, self-giving love of God. And that's why he created the family. Children, the new upcoming generation, will learn that they are loved and prized and belong before they've ever done a single thing to deserve it. And then God says, parents, the old generation, will learn that when they give, they receive. And when they give the most, they receive the most, and that given is just the best. They'll learn about my kingdom and how it works. And that's going to be the beauty of generations being together. It will be grace expressed, grace incarnate, or in the flesh. And then one day, I'll tell the human race, and they can finally get it, I am your father, you are my daughter, you are my son. They'll get it and be completely overwhelmed. That's family. So here's what Paul writes. St. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So the name of family is the expression of the character, the love, and the grace of God. The family is a reflection of who God is. So Paul says, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth gets its name and was created to express. He says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love. And that's the whole idea of what families are supposed to do. They have the power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ for you and you and you and me, right? 
all you've ever wanted. Now, that's the first moment the family was God's idea and what his intention was. And, if you, and by the way, God only created two institutions, the family and the church. One's a natural family, the other is the spiritual family, all right? And if you want to know why family goes so deep in the heart of every person, no matter how old they are, no matter how together we look or don't, or why it evokes and touches longings and hopes and dreams inside all of us that no other word evokes, you start here. The family is God's idea. And it's meant to express, to mirror, the ultimate spirituality, the ultimate truth of the universe. The family is not an arbitrary cultural artifact that man came up with that comes and goes. The family is not just a biological mechanism so I can pass on DNA to keep the gene pool moving. It's a divinely orchestrated and ordained idea. It was created by God to be a reflection of God's character and the manifestation of His kingdom and the vehicle of His grace. Now, that's the family. There's never been anything like it, never been an idea like it. That was a good moment. Moment number two is a critical moment. The first husband and the first wife of the first family disobey God. Now, this moment is recorded in Genesis chapter 3. And what I'd like you to notice is the impact it has on the family, because that's the place that really got devastated first. The man and the woman eat the forbidden fruit, and God says, have you eaten from a tree I commanded you not to eat from? And the man, of course, stepped forward and says, yes, sir, I did it. It's my fault. I take full responsibility. I'm so sorry. Put all the heat on me. That ain't what the man said. The man said, the woman, you gave me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Now, there's only one other human being in the whole world, and the man blames her. And notice, he doesn't even call her by her name. He doesn't say, Eve, the woman, you gave me. He just says, the woman. And that's what we do in families when things go wrong. You know what that son of yours did? Or do you know what your mother did? No name, see? You ever hear those words? Those are fighting words. This woman, she wasn't my idea. God, you gave her to me. Can you see the blame going on? The woman you gave me. So imagine what happened later on when Adam and Eve go to whatever they call home, and they debriefed this moment. You think Eve said, Adam, I so admire your courage in throwing me under the bus. And pointing out to God, it was my fault that I gave you the fruit. Thanks so much for telling God all about that. No, instead, blame, deceit, cowardice, denial, unresolved conflict, all start right here in the home, in the family. Now, if you ever read through Genesis, A, you're going to feel better, as I'm going to give you some of it now. One of the things that will strike you is the story of families. It's not the story you would expect. Great nations, great armies, great corporations, but it's all about families. And it's played out not on battlefields or battlegrounds or courtyards or palaces. It's in the home, the story of families. And not just families, but deeply dysfunctional families. If you think your family is dysfunctional, hang on for the ride. The first murder was between two brothers, Cain and Abel. Then there's a murderer named Lamech. He comes along and introduces polygamy to the human race. 
Then a man named Noah gets drunk, and his son sees him naked, and Noah pronounces a formal curse on his own kid. And Noah is called the most righteous man in his generation, which sets the bar kind of low. If he's the best, Abraham lies and says his wife Sarah is really his sister because she's beautiful and a powerful man wants her for his harem. Abraham doesn't want to be killed, so he lies and tells Sarah to lie. He does not not once, but he does it twice. He has a child with Sarah's maid, and later he abandons both of them. His other son, Isaac, and his wife spend their times playing favorites with their two boys, Jacob and Esau. Esau now wants to kill Jacob, and he has to go off into exile for years. So Jacob goes on to marry two women. He has children with both of them and with both of their maids. He favors one of his sons, Joseph, so much that the other brothers want to kill him. And they end up selling Joseph into slavery, lying about it, covering it up for years and years. Anybody feeling better about your family this morning? That's just, the, these families are Jerry Springer material. And that's just the first book in the Bible. And notice the writer of Genesis doesn't try to cover up, put makeup on any of this, because there has never been a golden age of the family. Families are made up of little sinners who grow up to become big sinners. And one of the other things, it's through these strange, dysfunctional, messed up, wacko families that God is still present, working to keep the dream of redemption for mankind alive, which is kind of nice to know he can work through just about anything, anything. Your problem's not too big. See, these families are laid open before all of us in their humanity and their brokenness. The church is not a place for successful, got-it-all-together families to come together and smugly congratulate themselves on how well they're doing. It is a place for people in families broken and marred by sin to come and confess our need for God to help me to do what only God can do and to turn our families over to Him because I'm not God, you're not God, and we can't do it by ourselves. Can I get an amen? One, one of the great lessons of life is there is a God and it ain't me. And the sooner you get that, the better it'll be. A Sunday school teacher was teaching a class of five and six-year-old kids on creation in Genesis. So she asked one of the little boys to stand up on a ladder and he's supposed to shine a flashlight down just at the right time and say, let there be light. So this little kid's role was to play God. And as she was giving other roles to other kids in the class, she felt a tug on her skirt, and it was that little boy. And he said, teacher, could you get somebody else to play my role? I'm just feeling too silly today to be God. And I kind of thought, that's a good thing to say every day. There is a God, and it ain't me. Boy, we need that reality in all of our lives. Many years ago, a long time ago, somebody from a local business was talking to me and said that he frequently came by Summit and would see all the people dressed up and dressed up and driving nice cars. And of course, he obviously hadn't seen them all. We have a few oil slicks out there too, I'm sure. And to him, he said it looked like a cocktail party. He thought you had to give 15% of your income just to attend Summit. And he thought he could never belong to a place like that. He thought, that's just not my family. Well, it didn't take me long to set him straight about that's not the family you think it is. You have a wrong idea about church and the corporate gathering. 
So let me name the reality of family life as honestly as Genesis did for our day. Because you can wear nice clothes, you can drive nice cars, and you can look like you got it all together. So I'm going to name some real family problems and then ask if you're part of a family or somebody in your family has ever wrestled with any of these things I'm about to say. So if you've ever been part of a family where there were children who wrestled with some spiritual doubts that maybe God is not out there or who wrestled with insecurity or peer rejection or low self-esteem, ever been in a family where there were drinking problems, experimental with drugs or sexual activity outside of marriage or an unwanted pregnancy or an abortion or somebody experiencing confusion and torment over sexual orientation issues, Ever been part of a family where angry, bitter words got spoken on a regular basis? Where a mom or a dad felt like a vocation failure or financial failure? Or kids who feel like failures because of their grades? Or kids who got good grades but are plagued by anxiety, depression, or stress? Or the secret they cheat to bring home a good grade to get parents to accept them? Or people who come to church but have a spouse who won't? Or young people who have never been asked on a date, and inside they feel like a loser, but they're afraid to talk about it. Or people who have been through the pain of divorce. Or people who have never been married and who wonder if they, if, if they can be an insider in a community without having to get married. Somebody defined marriage as a city under attack. Those outside are trying to get in, and those inside are trying to get out. I, sorry. Okay. Or people carrying around a secret like sexual addiction, substance abuse, but nobody knows. Or sons or daughters who feel like a disappointment because they have a parent they could never please no matter what they did. See, if, if we're going to be a family together, we have to dethrone the whole idol of pride and image and appearance. So anybody in this service been through or been part of a family with any of those scenarios, just slip a hand up. Yeah. Okay, I want you to remember that picture right now when you're tempted to think we all have it together. And remember, if you've messed up, if you fouled up, if you feel like you set a record for bad or brokenness, this is your place. You belong here. Welcome home. Sheesh. Can you see? Can you see it's all pretty much all of us? Which leads to the third and final moment. The first great moment was that church, family, sorry, is God's idea. It's God's idea. It's an expression of his grace. The second horrible moment is when all violence, anger, deceit, betrayal, hurt, and woundedness has flowed out of us, which is sin, turning away from God's will for the human race. So where's our hope? Well, I want to know from where does our hope come, but it's the third critical moment in family. God is going to create a new family. Now, there's hope, and it has a name, and it begins with a man named Jesus. There's a lot of other hopes and resources for families that are very good, but there's only one hope that everything hinges on. Jesus' life and ministry seem kind of strange, especially for his family. I mean, Jesus was God come down to earth and made flesh. He became human and was part of a real family with siblings and parents and all of the struggles you and I have when you're part of a family. He starts his ministry and his family is not cheering him on. They are upset he's hanging out with bad people. 
He's offending the religious leaders and respectable people, and they don't like it at all. It's reflecting bad on them. So in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, it says, When his family heard about what he was doing, they went to take charge of him. They're going to do an intervention. They said he's out of his mind. That's Jesus' family. Do you think that played real well with Jesus? Maybe his family's concerned that their reputation might be trashed. People looking at them weird because of what Jesus is doing. So they're going to do this intervention and pull him out of what he's doing. People tell Jesus, hey, your mother and your brother are outside, and they're, they're looking for you. And there's this moment that Jesus says back to him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked around at all the people gathered around listening to him teach, and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother, my sister, and my mother. So Jesus is now starting a new family. Maybe yours is messed up, but you can get in this one. This is a spiritual family, and that's what's going on. This is the third critical moment in the history of the family. Jesus is starting a new one, and he says, all human beings who will love God, anybody at all, can be part of my family. And that means they will become brothers and sisters with each other, and they will be committed to each other in love. You know, my sister and I used to fight, sibling fight, but I wouldn't let anybody mess with my sister. That's kind of family, right? It's not just that they come together occasionally on a weekend service. They become family, and there's never been a family like this before that transcends status and gender and age and nationality and skin color and culture. And by the way, it upset everybody when Jesus did it. He just blew all the tradition out of the water. The church wasn't going to be nationality. The church wasn't going to be political. The church wasn't going to be the male or the female and one lower than the other. He just wrecked everything and said, whatever I've cleansed, don't you call it unclean. Wow. And Peter, you know, Peter, sort of a redneck with the empty beer cans in his pickup with the, with the, with the gun rack in the back. You can kind of see him. Well, don't forget he's been raised that way. And he didn't just get fixed overnight. It took Peter, it, Paul, the apostle, had to rebuke him three different times because he just was a slow learner. Said, this is the new family, and this family doesn't have racial identity. It doesn't have national identity. It's a spiritual birth. You got your race, your nationality, you got all that in a natural birth but you got your spiritual birth spiritually. So there's no male, no female, no bond, no free, no Jew, no Gentile, no Episcopalian or Baptist. We have really screwed it up. Can I just tell you, we have really screwed up the church. This is not what God, God planned. And I look at the stuff going on and I thought, do any of these people even read the Bible? I mean, where did you get that? I watch people, I've been to funerals, I've been to, and I thought, where did you come up with that nonsense? It isn't in the Bible, right? Okay. It's amazing. It's, if you just read something, I mean, it will just, it'll make a lot of people mad, but it'll set you free. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm one of those guys in class who would say, why? Show me. Give me scripture for that. And boy, when you watch them back up and punt and go into defense, you realize, ah, oh, you're sucking air. You don't have any scripture for that. 
That's just, a, that's just your preference or your, your little doctrine, or your little tradition. It's got nothing to do with truth. Well, this new church sprang into being now. Never been anything like it before. And there was a single command at the root of this new community. Jesus put it this way in John 15, verse 12. My commandment is this, love one another as I've loved you. Not as your daddy didn't love you. Not as somebody else didn't love you. Love others as I loved you. Sometimes that love can be a, a confrontation. Sometimes painful, but always giving. But love one another as I have loved you. And Jesus says, would you guys do that for each other? Become brothers and sisters. You know, many years ago, Cindy and I were in a special glass shop, and they had pricey, crafted, colored glass items. Beautiful. And we had our two girls were just little, little toddlers. And they had a big sign that said, by the way, this was not my idea to go in the, the glass shop, just in case you're wondering, okay? I was just being a good husband. All right, okay. Yes, dear. But they had a big sign in there that said, beautiful to look at, lovely to hold, but if you break it, consider it sold. And I was terrified. Our little girls are going to knock something over and break it, and I'd be paying for it to this day. I was worried about it. Now, here's the point. Every day you and I walk through God's shop, the world, and we're often kind of clumsy, and we're forgetful, and we don't notice we're brushing up against these objects of incalculable worth called human beings. Maybe driving on a freeway, talking at work, sitting across the breakfast table, somebody from another generation or somebody with another language or culture, and they don't do it your way or eat your way or dress your way, and there are these price tags that we don't see worth the death of my son on every human being. You have never looked into the eyes of a human being for whom Jesus did not die. Amen. Remember that. I need to remember that in all of our conversations, in all of our encounters, in all of our impatience, in our anger, in our selfishness. One day Jesus says, I'm going to start a new family, and I'm going to welcome everybody into it, and it's going to have this way of attracting people who thought they were outsiders. And one of the most piercing statements in the Bible is from Psalms 27, verse 10. And you think about what it means, and some of you know this pain. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. That is very comforting. No natural father like that. That's our heavenly father. See, the father is still bringing in children to his family. And by the way, you can join that family today too. If you've never done that before, you can come to God and say, God, I want to be part of your family. I want to confess to you my sin, my brokenness inside of me, and I want you to forgive me because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. I want you to be my, my father, my guide, my savior, my leader, my Lord for the rest of my life. How smart do you have to be? See, I want, you to, I want to know that you are my father. I want to be your son, or I want to be your daughter. See, there's no abuse by him in his family. I'll never leave you or say, I'll be a father to the fatherless. I'll be a husband to the widow. This is a strange family. That's what church is supposed to be. See, you can be in God's family today. It's just as simple as that. And Jesus is starting a new family, and it's here. It's us, those around you, brothers and sisters. Church is to be a whole new family reality. And families are built on commitment, committed, gracious love. And then Jesus says, 
there are people, and you think of them as outsiders. You think of them as outside of our family here. You think of them as enemies. But here's my plan for them. You love them too. You love each other the way I love you. And then love those people like I love you. Jesus is just amazing. Never been anything like him. He says, you bless them, you pray for them. And then when that happens and people see it, that kind of a family becomes kind of irresistible. And it really happened. You know, next week we're going to talk about starting off well in a family. This generation now coming to maturity, it faces huge challenges. And all of us need to find out what goes into forming and shaping a human being when it's done right. Getting started well. Then we'll talk about finishing strong. What are the challenges that this generation faces? And what do we face as we turn older and gray? Because all of us will get there. So how do we embrace it well? And finally, we'll talk about passing the torch to the next generation. We all need to be part of a family that can do that well. And we can all do it together. So that's our start about family. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.